Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is a perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life, there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. to Bard's Logic Political Talk, part of the Conservative Conversation, and also part of the Patriot Journalist Network. And you can find the Patriot Journalist Network by going to www.patriotjournalist.com. And we've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, we've got a couple guests on, one from Utah and one from Texas. Uh, we have a Craig uh, Bowden who's going up against our favorite here on the show, and I'm, you know I'm saying that quite facetiously. Uh, uh, Mitt Romney in Utah. Wow, I tell you what, we've got some audio clip uh, for Mitt uh, on Mitt Romney that we certainly could play if we got some time tonight. Uh, certainly, we certainly do. Um, and perhaps we'll get some of uh, Mitt's greatest hits here uh, because uh, the first uh, candidate we have coming on tonight uh, is from the uh, state of Utah. Uh, we'll be going against Mitt Romney, which I never knew Mitt Romney was really from Utah. Maybe I, I, I was wrong, but uh, anyway, I, I thought he was from Massachusetts. I, I guess he's getting things confused. Uh, but let's go ahead and welcome our guest, our guest, and that is Craig Bowden. Uh, thank you very much, Craig, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? I'm doing really well. How about yourself? Oh, doing all right, doing all right. They've had uh, – either a headache or a migraine for the past six days. So I'm uh, uh, carrying through, but oh well. But uh, but, but beyond that, doing, doing all right, doing all right. <laughs> appreciate you. Know, I appreciate the, you coming on to the show. So, uh, yes, uh, you're going up against our friend uh, Mitt Romney. Uh, as people remember the show back in 2012, we certainly weren't uh, a fan and, and still aren't in 2016, 17, uh, and 18 as well. So, uh, unfortunately, at this point, uh, and that's kind of how we'll begin, uh, is, you know, Trump has already endorsed him trying to heal the Republican Party, um, you know, but the, 
will men actually help out with the, the agenda, uh, the populist agenda that, that that Trump has put out? Who knows? But uh, but speaking of uh, Mitt Romney, one of the polls is for uh, for you, Craig. Uh, you know, and the polls, of course, uh, at least on UtahPolicy.com, has uh, Mitt Romney at a substantial lead, as you probably know, at 60 percent, mm-hmm. with his closest opponent uh, Jenny Wilson at 14 percent. But you, you still got you've got three percent. So uh, you know, as a libertarian candidate, uh, that you know it's not bad. That's actually beating out some other Republican and uh, you know Democrat candidates there in Utah. Uh, so you know, who knows? Maybe there could be some turns, and, and you could get more percentage. You know, maybe even pull that out. That'd be great. Uh, you know, for you. And then so having that knowledge, what is uh, motivating you uh, to running for the Senate? Well, the the first thing that motivates me to run uh, is my kids. Uh, I, I'm a father of six, and you know when I look back at my childhood, there there was a lot more opportunity uh, for me when I was transitioning into becoming an adult, and I want to have those same opportunities for my children. And that actually extends beyond my own kids into the you know children who live in my neighborhood and my community. Uh, the second thing that really motivates me. Uh, to run is I've always kind of felt an obligation to serve. Um, I, I was in the Marine Corps for almost eight years. I uh, would have done the full 20 if I would have been injured. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, I, I would have done the full 20 if I wouldn't have been injured, had a training accident, and that pretty much uh, ended my career there. Um, and, and so just that kind of longing to serve, uh, that, that's just kind of always been with me since I was a, a young man at about 16, 17 years old when I started talking to recruiters. Um, and then the third thing is there's got to be another option than, you know, it, it, essentially the way that I equate it is Mitt Romney is the nominee, Jenny Wilson is the nominee, we have two Democrats, so it really doesn't matter who you vote for in that case. Because they're going to be doing pretty much the same kind of things. Um, we know that Mitt Romney has a record that is fairly liberal, uh, you know, and he's got that record from being governor in Massachusetts. And while he does, you know, pander to the more conservative base um, during, you know, the uh, uh, nomination period, um, as soon as it gets into the general election, he swings right back into the squishy middle where you really don't have to have a spine required uh, to run as a candidate. And at, in his governing, um, he, he doesn't really have a spine either. He just kind of bends to the whims of what whatever happens to be popular at the time. And so th- those are just some of the things that, you know, keep me motivated to, uh, you know, continue running. Uh, the odds for a third party, they're always stacked against us. But they're not impossible. We've had libertarians who have won throughout the country in some local offices. We have a state senator um, that, that's in Nebraska, and we have a handful of some other state legislatures, state legislators that are in uh, New Hampshire. So it, it's not impossible. Um, it, it's just you know a tough hill to climb sometimes. Yeah, speaking of Nebraska, we do have uh, we've had some candidates a week or so ago. Uh, from Nebraska, I believe we have uh, another one coming on actually next week, uh, and I believe he's running uh, as a Republican in, in Nebraska. He'll be on. Uh, he'll be on next week, uh, so I'll be reaching back out to, uh, to him. And, and for the folks out there, you know, you know, listening, and you know, you're debating between, you know, 
Romney and, you know, perhaps our guest here, uh, and you're, you know, conservative, remember, remember this. Remember, and these aren't uh, my words. These are from our friend Mitt Romney. Romney's all-day bus tour made a stop in Worcester this afternoon where supporters gathered to cheer him on and rally the troops to get out the vote. Voter turnout is expected to decide this race, with a large turnout expected to help Romney. With that in mind, the campaign has set up 38 phone banks and targeted 150,000 undecided and unenrolled voters to receive phone calls. Many Democrats say a tie in the polls gives the edge to Shannon O'Brien because she has that statewide organization, including union and minority support. But the Romney campaign says that support is overrated and is eroding. They point to the recent endorsement from El Mundo, the largest Spanish-speaking newspaper in the state. I think the old, uh, uh, you know, standby uh, definitions of who votes for which party have uh, been blown away in this campaign. I think people recognize that I'm not a partisan Republican, that I'm someone who is moderate and that my, my views are progressive, and that I'm going to go to work for our senior citizens, for people who've been left behind by urban schools that are not doing the right job, uh, and so they're going to vote for me regardless of the party label. And again, that's from Mitt Romney's mouth. I, <laughs> I'm a moderate and I'm a progressive. My views are progressive. So there you have it on that. <laughs> yeah, he, he definitely uh, likes to put his foot in his mouth. I mean, during his announcement speech here in Utah, he actually uh, started proposing some gun control me- measures. And I don't know if he thought that he woke up in his Massachusetts home or his California home, but it definitely was not the Utah home. Because uh, Utah is a very pro-gun state, and I think he just kind of picked a state because he thought, "Oh yeah, yeah, I could win there." <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> and uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, a lot of folks, uh, at least according to this poll, sixty percent, uh, you know, are, are going to, you know, at this point, would vote for him. Maybe just because he's got that R in his name, and it kind of brings us to our next question. Uh, of course, we know Romney was never a big, you know, Trump fan. Of course, now if he got endorsed, they're probably, you know, Republican buddies now. But I'm, I'm saying that kind of, you know, again, facetiously. Uh, but, you know, we've seen, you know, Trump's been in office for a year. Uh, so what do you think about how Trump's uh, administration has been doing so far? You know, the, there's a, a few things that I can applaud for sure. Um, obviously, coming out in favor of cutting taxes is a big one. Um, now, personally, I would have liked to see to, – to have seen some – spending cuts tied in with that as well. Um, uh, unfortunately, the House and Senate, you know, they, they didn't get those cuts in uh, like I would have liked to see, but at least we've got some taxes cut. Um, so that that's definitely something that I can applaud the president on. Um, so some things that I've kind of been concerned about with him um, recently, the, the uh, tariffs, because um, Ultimately, what ends up happening with tariffs is the price ends up getting passed down to the consumer. In this case, that'll be your, you know, everyday purchaser. Um, so those kind of things do kind of concern me. The the good thing about not being, you know, uh, uh, within the Democrat or the Republican parties is I'm not going to be beholden to, you know, uh, uh, whoever's in the White House. You know, I'm not going to be flip-flopping an agenda based on who happens to be there. I'm going to be consistent. Um, so when they do something good, I'm going to be behind them 100%. When the individual uh, does something incorrect, I'm going to call them out on it. And that, that's the way that we should be uh, when, when it comes to governing. A good policy is a good policy, and a bad policy is a bad policy. And so while he has done some good, and I would congratulate him on it, I would also call him out when he does things that would be 
questionable or that go against constitutional principles. You know, and I can, again, a good segue is what, what are your thoughts on uh, the whole, you know, rush inclusion and the Mueller investigation? You know, personally, I think it's a waste of time. Um, I mean, if there is some stuff going on there where there's influence, one of the things we need to do is look in the mirror because we, we've been involved in regime change. We've been involved in influencing elections. Um, you know, every country does it. Um, they shouldn't, but, but that is what does happen. Now, if the investigation does end up turning up that there was some collusion going on, then, you know, appropriate charges for the individuals that were involved, you know, should be filed. Um, but frankly, I, I look at it as kind of a grandstanding uh, kind of deal where they're just trying to use this as another opposition measure. And when you're opposing just for opposing's sake, you're, you're not really helping out the country. Now, one of the things, uh, you know, kind of opposition research uh, now, is that something that, you know, you're planning on doing in any of your – because that's, you know, kind of what uh, – how a lot of this came about is the Democrats were actually doing opposition research on, on Trump. And, of course, then, you know, that's where you got the, um, you know, for the FISA warrant, you know, you know things of that nature. You know the story, uh, how they came up with that dossier, you know, that, that, that fixed-up uh, dossier uh, paid for uh, by the Clinton the, the Clinton campaign. Uh, but be that as may, I mean, do you plan on doing any type? Are you just going to be solely, uh, you know, talk about your issues, or you, you thinking that you you might do some? You know, I mean, we we did a, you know some research on Romney, um, you know, back in 2012 because uh, when the show started, uh, you know, it was really supporting Newt Gingrich, and you know, we just dug up some things and, and you know, report on some things, uh, you know, with with Romney. Uh, such as you know some dealings with Bain Capital and, and things of that nature. We've got an audio we could play with mm -hmm. that. But is that going to be? Would that be part of your campaign to kind of say, hey, you know, I would be a better candidate. We're going to talk more about that. You know, whereas, you know, if you want to get more, you know, people who support Trump, because I mean there was a wave. I think I really do think there was a movement that got uh, Trump elected. Because I mean I really because I really don't see him as a Republican. I don't think it's like oh my gosh the Republicans won. You know, the presidency, eh, he was more of a populist than, than a Republican, and I think he's still proving that out uh, today. But, I mean, is that going to be part of your campaign? You're going to be solely focused on issues. Because, I mean, unfortunately, um, because of what you've got up against you, you may need some, uh, you know, some dirt, I guess, you know, and, of course, true dirt, you know, on, on the candidate. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, that's just how politics run anymore or have been for a while. Yeah, yeah, you know, if there's going to be some digs, there's going to be some digs. Uh, you know, that, that's just kind of the nature of campaigning. But we do definitely try to focus as much as we can on the issues. Um, you know, even our campaign slogan, it's uh, breaking barriers and uh, building the future. And that's really what we want to focus on is how do we break those barriers that are in the way of things like business? You know, how do we build the future for our youth? And so we do want to kind of have a issue centric, but I, I just have to assume that there's going to be some digs here and there. I'm sure he's going to hit me with a few. Uh, I'm sure uh, Jenny Wilson will hit me with a few and I'm sure I'll jab back a little bit. Um, you know, that, that's just kind of the way that campaigns are done, but I would really like to just kind of provide that message of something you can vote for as opposed to vote against. 
And so do you think that, you know, when, you know, because a lot of, you know, folks, you know, because they voted for Trump, and since, you know, you'd be directly, you know, voting on things, uh, you know, for his agenda, would you feel that you would fit more in line with what Trump Trump's agenda is uh, than Romney? And any, what, and any specific it, it, issues you think you would fit more in with that? I mean, I know it's a different you know, party, but. The, the the way that I look at it is I, I don't even know which Mitt Romney is going to be showing up. Um, he, he's had so many <laughs> flip flops; it's hard to really tell. Um, so so I can't really say that I'm going to be closer aligned with Trump because he might say some things that are closer in alignment with Trump, uh, just to try to rally some votes. Um, I, I just go back to my previous statement that when he has something in his agenda that's something I can support, I'm going to be behind it a hundred percent. If it's something that I can't support, uh, uh, j- just as an example, uh, one of the things when he was uh, talking with some of the uh, House and Senate members about gun control, about, you know, we'll worry about due process later, um, you know, that that's something that I could not support. And so w- when I look at those kind of things, you know, th- that's something that I would have to stand against because due process always has to come first. Um, but if he wanted to do something that's going to help the American people, that's going to be pro-liberty, uh, that, that's going to expand liberty for the, the greater good of the country, then I'm going to be behind him 100%. And let's kind of – I've got, I got a, a funny audio. I, 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 no matter how many times uh, – and this is on to your point. You said you don't know which, which Mitt Romney is going to show up. I've got this really funny – uh, audio clip. Uh, it's only about a minute long, but I mean, it makes me laugh every time. Uh, every time I hear it. Mr. President, just how different are you from Governor Romney? <laughs> uh, now, let me be clear. Uh, I agreed with Governor Romney on many things. For instance, abortion. He was pro-choice most of his adult life. So was I. But he changed his position uh, when he became presidential candidate. Uh, uh, hold on. Now let's take guns. <laughs> Now, Governor Romney and I, we were in complete agreement on gun control. Now, that is, until he changed his mind. But but I... And on health care, well, I was so inspired by Romneycare that I nationalized it and called it Obamacare. Whoa, whoa. But now, presidential candidate Romney is against the individual mandate and universal health care. I agreed with Governor Romney on many things. But this presidential candidate Romney, I don't even know the guy. Then again, uh, he doesn't seem to know himself. Oh, come on. Governor Romney? <laughs> Getting our future is responsible for the content of this message. <laughs> I find that funny every time I play it. It gets it so true, but it's, it's just hilarious. <laughs> yeah, uh, th- th- there's times where I, I kind of want to do a remake of uh, Eminem's uh, Will the Real Slim Shady Please Stand Up? But you know, obviously insert Mitt Romney uh, in the song because, uh, you know, that, that clip just hits it so right on the nose. Um, you know, you, you don't really have any consistency in his positions over the years. Um, he, he's taken all sides at different times. And so it, it's hard to tell who he's going to be. Now, the good thing about me is if you actually look back through my history, uh, th- this isn't my first rodeo running for office. Um, you know, you can see that consistent message that's applied, you know, so the Craig Bowden that you see, um, you know, in front of you campaigning is going to be the same Craig Bowden that's going to be in the Senate and the, the same Craig Bowden that you're going to see all throughout, um, you know, his life. That, that's just the way that I am. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it especially, you know, one of the things we, you know, promote and push a lot on the show is, you know, and that's kind of part of our, you know, bucking the political class. Uh, and that is, you know, we're, the career politicians, you know, we really like to see, uh, you know, t- you know, term limits, things of, you know, th- things of that nature, you know. And one thing that, that, you know, that you're talking about, uh, and, you know, when I'm looking at your website there, and I do have a link, folks, uh, to it. You can learn more uh, by going to, uh, here on Blog Talk Radio, I do have a link to his page, uh, and you do talk about. Um, uh, I think somewhere where you where you are talking about a constitutional amendment uh, for either term limits or was it a balanced budget amendment that, that you're talking about? Uh, that, I, I think that you probably saw the balanced budget budget amendment support. Um, balanced budget, you know, obviously, okay. you know we're twenty trillion dollars in debt. We're going to be you know, continuing to rise in that debt if something's not done. And what I want to see is a uh, not only a balanced budget amendment, but one that talks about how you cannot raise taxes in order to do it. You've got to cut the spending. You got to cut the fat. Now, when it's when it, when it cuts spending, now see here's how they do. And you're, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know, but a lot, you know, a lot of folks, you know, listening, you know, may or may not know. But when they talk about well, we we cut taxes. Or not, you know, we have taxes. When we cut spending, when they say they cut spending, they're really not cutting spending. They're just cutting the increase in spending. Mm-hmm. So instead of increasing, you know, how much we're going to spend by ten percent, well, we're only going to increase it by eight percent. And so by that, they're like, oh, well, we're going to cut spending. No, you're just going to cut the increase of spending. But they never mm-hmm. make the differentiation. You know, when they talk about doing that, so when they're talking about cutting spending, it's got to be real cuts, not just, oh, exactly. we're just not going to, you know, spend, you know, less of a higher percentage <laughs> than, than what we yeah, were first yeah. planning on doing it. I mean, you, you can look at a lot of the, the programs that are out there that are being spent on. And uh, Senator Rand Paul, actually, when he was, uh, you know, railing against the uh, uh, budget increase here just a, about a month ago, you know, he, he was hitting it right on uh, the nail where there's just some really ridiculous programs that are being funded. And, you know, I mean, obviously that's real easy to get rid of right off the bat. Um, we also need to start looking into, you know, so, some of the entitlement spending. We need to um, start looking even into some of the um, uh, Department of Defense spending. And that's not to say that we shouldn't have a strong military you know, that's ready to defend the country, but we need to have a department that's focused on defense and, you know, not going in um, basically what we like to call in the Libertarian Party empire building around the world. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, And so when we look at those cuts, uh, just take, for example, with the Department of Defense, the F-35 program. Uh, The the F-35, you know, they, they wanted a new plane. And when it came time for testing, it's getting outmaneuvered by the plane it's supposed to be being replaced. Uh, so the F-16 sitting there running circles around it, and we spent $1.35 trillion on these planes that can't even beat a 40-year-old airframe. Um, so that, that's the kind of spending that I would be looking at with the Department of Defense. Um, you know, Social Security, it's another one that we really need to look into. Um, you know, obviously people who are uh, you, you know, at that point where there's really no return, they need to be given the, the chance to 
get the money that they paid in back. But we need to have the ability for an opt-out for people, say, my age and younger, to where we can invest that, where we're going to get greater returns and where we're not going to have to worry about it because at the rate that it's going, it's going to be an insolvent system. And so just kind of looking at some of those things, uh, we, we, we've got to start making plans. We've got to start making cuts. And th- these need to be issues that aren't partisan. They, they just need to get looked at because if we don't, we're going to be like a household that sits there and gets payday loans, uh, you know, for years and years and years. Well, eventually the debt collector is going to come. And we're getting to that point where there's going to be a tip and that tip is going to hurt the vast majority of people in the country. And I don't want to see that happen. And some are going to, but some contend that who's, I mean, like they say, China, China holds, you know, 10% or more of our debt. Uh, But there's, you know, some who contend like, well, when are they ever going to collect? I mean, they're not going to ever try to collect. The only way they can try to collect is through military means. And they would never do that. How would you respond to that? Well, the, the reality is if they call the uh, punk card on it, what what are we going to do? I mean, when, when they are talking about owning, you know, e- even 1% of the debt is huge. Um, so if they decide to pull the punk card on it, what what are we going to do to go against it? Um, that, that's the real question that needs to be asked. And there's not really much that we can do. I mean, they, they are starting to emerge as a superpower. And so we obviously need to keep our eyes on them. Um, But in reality, if they decide to cash in, there's not much that we can do. Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't so much suggest, again, that, you know, the only way they can make is, you know, do it or cash in would be military. I don't know if I particularly subscribe to that at this point. But, yeah, I mean, they are increasing as war power. They're increasing – uh, their military, they're they're expanding our space, you know, their space pra- uh, space program and space exploration. I try to say program and exploration at the same time, so it screwed me up. Uh, <laughs> and so they're expanding that. So that brings me to my next question: is you know, since China is do- you know expanding their space program, and you know, Trump, you know, kind of hinted a little bit on it, and, and I want to bring, uh, uh, we'll maybe bring it back around because I do want to ask more about uh, one of the things you're talking about with NATO. Because uh, I remember Trump was at one time talked about getting uh, moving away from NATO and, and the other countries paying their fair share, and um, you know now he's kind of moving back on that, at least on pulling away from NATO. But you know since we're already on this kind of moving uh, seamlessly to the topic, but China is expanding their space program. What's your thoughts on NASA and the United States expanding their you know our space program, especially when it comes oh, to I- you know exploration? Uh, mm-hmm. getting resources from space, things of that nature. Well, I, I look at programs like SpaceX. Um, you know, they, they just recently had a, a really successful launch, and it, it's a very cost alter, co- cost-effective alternative to what NASA has been doing. I mean, if you notice, there hasn't really been a whole lot of progress since the 80s when it comes to the, the type of rockets that we're using, the space shuttle, Etc. But with what SpaceX was able to do on a much smaller budget is they can actually reuse the rockets that they're sending stuff up. Um, and so obviously we, we can start enabling the private sector to, to start doing uh, some, some of that space exploration. 
And that, that's something that, you know, in a, a Chinese-style uh, communist government isn't going to be as able to do because they don't have a capitalist system. They, they don't have a more free market. And so they, they don't have companies that are going to be able to really take that. They are dependent on the state to do it. And frankly, China's had to borrow our technology, and I use the term borrow loosely, um, in order to even get <laughs> their, their rockets yeah, I know what you mean. Um, up into space. Well, yeah, and, and you know, then that's one of the things they're actually saying they would they would need is a, a rocket that can actually, uh, you know, you know, come back as you said and be reused uh, for exploration, you know, of Mars, which is a, a, a big goal. Uh, then, when we got Susan on the line, Susan, we're you know, well, we got others on the line, but she's wanting to chime in. Others would like to chime in. Push the one on your number dial. We'll get you in. You can uh, speak with our guest tonight from Utah, and. What, what's your thoughts then on on public po, po, okay, gosh I don't know why I can't project my migraines I'm sorry but what's your uh, what's your thought on public private uh, partnerships then you know what what I see with a lot of the public private partnerships are uh, an, a good example of cronyism it's usually somebody's family member somebody's friend somebody's um, you know campaign donor that's getting those kinds of contracts. So unless I actually see something in the way of ethics with teeth, where those kind of issues aren't going to be prevalent, where we don't have those cronyous systems, um, you know, I, I can't really favor that. Um, I, I would like to see a greater expansion into the free market. And that, that means that we need to stop letting, um, you know, the government meddle in things. Uh, what, one good example um, is Rocky Mountain Power here in Utah. Um, they're the ones that make sure that our lights are on, um, you know, that, that our uh, TVs are working, everything like that. Well, with solar power uh, and solar panels coming about, they, they actually tried to essentially a tax placed on people who are installing these uh, solar panels uh, on people because it's hitting them in the pocketbooks. And so that type of public-private partnership you know, I, I cannot support at all. Um, and, and I don't want to see a situation that, you know, limits the amount of competition that there's going to be. Because ultimately competition, it's going to drive down the prices while increasing the quality. And so that's what I want to see. And as, as I said, I, we've got Susan on the line, and she'd like uh, to chime in. Uh, Susan, thank you very much uh, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Um. Tired after a long day, but I'm here and kicking. Um, didn't someone mention the Federal Reserve just a little bit ago? I thought oh, I heard that. that. I, no, I don't. I, I didn't. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I didn't. I don't recall. I was sure I don't recall somebody Craig did. did. Either, but go ahead. Um, well, so, so what, what's your question that, about the Federal Reserve? Well, there's no question. I know all about them, but uh, that idiot, uh, McConnell, is uh, going to try to block it coming to uh, a vote type thing, uh, uh, which is what Rand Paul was uh, blocked this week's vote on audit the Fed. Okay, so, uh, you're, you're talking uh, about the audit bill? Yes. Okay. Yes. Rand Paul, um, yeah, I know. signed... I signed a thing, and then they uh, obviously Rand Paul is just like his dad. He's gonna 
stick with this like a, a dog on a bone. So, uh, and and I'm all for it. And that idiot McConnell, is, he is an idiot. And, oh, I thought you'd want to hear the good news, Robert. Kasich is considering running again in 2020. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Well, I, you know what's you know what's interesting is I'm actually having uh, you brought up Kasich. I'm actually having coffee with his lieutenant governor tomorrow. <laughs> uh, Good for you. She, I uh, she's yeah she's can yeah she's campaigning uh, Mary Taylor. Uh, she's campaigning uh, to be governor, so she's taking a spot. And one of the things uh, is that you know for her is. You know, it's an obstacle. She's, you know, to move herself away from him because, I mean, towards the end of his camp, because, and I'm in Ohio, obviously now, you know, but, um, yeah, so she's, because there's a lot of people, especially towards the end of his uh, his terms, I mean, he was just not a very liked governor, uh, especially the way he ran and, you know, for the presidency. <laughs> I mean, I really did, but uh, that really did hurt him, I think. Uh, and unfortunately for, for Taylor, is it, it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, making things a little tougher for her for her campaign. Uh, she's running up against Mike DeWine, who is, you know, more middle of the road, uh, you know, kind of Kasich you know, X, uh, you know, candidate. And, you know, him and Houston, the two long-term uh, career politicians, uh, kind of joined together, to, you know, for their ticket. Now, uh, Renassi, who I'm still trying to get on the show, I was uh, talking with uh, Amy Murray, well, emailing rather but you know what i guess we've talked a couple times too but um you know and she you know she all keeps saying oh i'm gonna forward the, the, the you know the stuff for the stuff and i haven't yet so uh heard from him so but whatever uh but who knows well maybe because he was running until trump asked him to run for, for the senate there in ohio uh but but anyway I'm, I, I digress i just i just thought it was interesting you brought you know brought him up on you know, I'm supposed to go, you know, have, you know, just not just me, but, you know, a couple of us or, you know, or a group of us, whatever, have, have coffee with her in the morning. Some, but... people, some people just can't stay out of it. They don't know when they're not wanted anymore. And well, well, like, yeah, like, well, well, like Romney. I think Romney needs, I mean, Romney needs just to stay the hell out. I mean, I mean, I think we got, you know, just like we had Bush, uh, what do they call that, um, not Bush derangement syndrome, or, or um, Bush fatigue, you know, and Clinton fatigue. You know, I'm thinking, right. I'm starting to think, you know, <laughs> you know we're going to have Romney fatigue. I mean, come on. <laughs> Go ahead, Susan. Exactly. Okay, so here's the decision of your Ohio man. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do, but all options are on the table for me in my private professional life. I want to keep a voice. I think it's important, whether it's trade, immigration, and have we forgotten the Dreamers, DACA, the young people who came here? They're not even in the news anymore. <laughs> I put no. You don't want you. <laughs> well, uh, uh, great. I mean, yes. Let's let's bring that up. Uh, let's bring it up uh, to our guest, Craig. What's your thoughts on uh, now? Isn't the deadline coming up? Wasn't that or has it already passed? Did, wasn't it March the sixth? That um, or is, maybe is it March eighth? Is that tomorrow? That the deadline for DACA has passed or did, has it been extended? Or you're right. I really haven't yeah. heard much about that. You, you know, I, I honestly haven't been paying as much attention to that issue. Um, so I don't know if the deadline has passed um, for Congress to get their act together and actually get a law on the books. Um, so, you know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, but I'd be happy to look into that issue of statement. Um, 
on where I stand, obviously. Uh, that's one thing that I do try to do every time there is a question that comes up that I'm not entirely sure of. Um, now, my general stance is, you know, I, I believe that we need to have a more streamlined process for people so that there isn't really that, uh, you know, drive for illegal immigration. Um, I'd like to see something more simplified with the check-in, check-out process, and also where the states have a little bit more control over people who are coming in to work uh, within their state boundaries, things like that. Um, what, one of the big things that a lot of people don't even talk about is, you know, a good 40% of people who are here uh, illegally are from overstayed visas. And, and that's not something that's even being talked about hardly at all. Um, so, you know, obviously there's some things that need to be addressed. Um, I'd like to see a more simplified process um, for people who do want to come here and realize the American dream. Because um, those are the people that we want. We want hard workers. We want people who are going to be a part of the system that are going to, you know, help increase the value that America brings. Um, so, so I do want to see a, a better process in place. But, uh, you know, we, we obviously also have to watch out for security which is why we need to have, you know, that check-in process where you're going to get a background check, make sure you don't have terrorist ties, that you're not, you know, uh, wanted on murder, things like that. Um, so it, when it comes to immigration overall, though, I would like to see more control going towards the states because even when you look at Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, you know, it, it does mention naturalization, which the federal government does get to control, but it doesn't really mention anything about immigration. Um, so... That, that's one of the reasons why I'd like to see it kind of uh, more under the control of the states on who comes into work, who comes in to live, things like that. And actually, um, I got an article here uh, that it's passed. The DACA deadline passed. However, there's been court orders uh, out there that have postponed uh, the deadline for it. Now, I guess it's uh, an indefinite. Of course, it doesn't surprise me, to be honest. And I think the people, you know, in power kind of know this was going to happen. Um, but yeah, those court orders. So I guess once again they get to kick the can, uh, you know, kick the can down the road, which is you know we've been doing with almost every uh, issue for the past forty years, which is one of the mm -hmm. reasons why you know I was really excited when Trump did get elected because I'm like, oh, finally, you know, someone who's uh, you know not a career politician. You know, not really, not really a Democrat, not really a Republican. Um, you know, someone that you know keeps saying they're going to clean the swamp, and of course, probably without realizing how difficult that really is. Uh, that really is going to be to do, and that's one of the reasons why we have folks such as yourself on the show, Craig. Is I mean, it is going to take, in my opinion, you know, to have great, real, true grassroots candidates, and not always just the D's and the R's. Uh, you know, to get an office because you know we don't we we need citizen statesmen, stateswomen, in, uh, and and we're just not getting that. We're just getting the political class, as I like to call them, uh, where you know they they get in, they become a class of their own. Almost like we said this this phrase for years, or this term for years, is they become, in my opinion, the new oligarchy in the United States. Uh, and until we can pretty much primary them all out. <laughs> Not all of them. I mean, there's some people that have their favorites. Like I know, Susan, you have, uh, you know, Rand Paul is your favorite, and you know he'd be one I'd want to keep in. Uh, maybe I don't. I don't know. Like my my jury's still out on Ted Cruz, but 
But Rand Paul, I mean, I kind of got mixed thoughts on him. I know you really like him, but, you know, there has been opportunities where he's had the – you know, he could have endorsed, you know, grassroots and and Mm -hmm. real conservatives, and he ended up, you know, supporting the – uh, the establishment, you know, you know, choice, and so you know, with Rand Paul, I'm kind of like eh, on him. And really, I mean, really, yeah. there's not really anyone, or at least a lot of them in Congress, that or or, or the Senate that I'm that I'm really excited to to keep in there. Do you know why he endorsed McConnell? You know why? It was because why did he endorse McConnell instead of Matt Bevin? Because McConnell promised Rand a vote on audit the Fed, which he delivered, even though it failed. That was why. In in uh, when uh, Billy McConnell was asked or expected Rand to endorse him, and he did, uh, and that was why. Because yeah, but isn't that though, I mean, and, and let, let me, I'm going to bring this to Craig. Isn't that kind of the problem with Washington? It's like so instead of instead of endorsing your conscience, I'm going to endorse somebody. You know, hey, I'll pat you on the ass if you pat me on the ass. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, okay, I'll give you this vote, and you said it failed. So basically, and the vote meant nothing. If you vote and it means nothing, it doesn't matter whether the vote happened or not. I mean, they probably said, hey, endorse me, I'll give you a vote. Hey. It's going to fail, but hey, we can say we voted for it, you know. And it's that kind of backroom deals, people not, you know, voting their conscience or, or, or doing things on their conscience or their their so-called principles. I mean, isn't that the problem? I and mean, I, I think that's a big part of the problem. I agree. Uh, for that kind right. of for that to happen. I mean, if you're going to endorse a a, a conservative, if you're going to see your if you're if you're going to see your conservative, endorse a conservative. Most definitely, um, you know that that. It's what I like to call D.C. Island Syndrome. Um, you know, they're basically in an island surrounded by politicians and lobbyists and special interest groups. And they they become disconnected from their core ideals. They become disconnected from their constituents, um, you know, everything like that. And so one, one of the things that I actually would like to introduce, uh, assuming the state of Utah does send me to Washington, D.C., um, it is uh, part of my government for the people plan uh, it is where it unifies the House and the Senate on the same schedule um, so that you don't have to worry about it being so sporadic, where basically the first two weeks of the month, you're in either committee or session, um, you know, voting on the floor on bills. And then the final two weeks, you're back home in your states responding to your constituents uh, so that you get the input on the bills, you get to meet with those voters, and you get to reconnect with why you were there in the first place. And I, I think that would go a really long way in, in, you know, helping with some of those problems where you're having backroom deals, where you're having, you know, the, this uh, lack of an ideological core, where you're forgetting why you went there in the first place. And you, you would have less of that if they would get out of that island. Susan, would you I like to respond to that? I, well, I, I agree. But I don't believe Rand did it for that reason. I really believe he was trying to do what his dad had been fighting for all those years. He was trying to do anything to get it up there and to people's attention. And it is coming up. It made it out of the House. It made it to the Senate. 
So we can only hope that what he sacrificed, which was, you know, his integrity. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sorry, Susan. You know, but that's how I feel about it. I mean, that's how I seriously. That's truly how I feel about it. He sacrificed his integrity. Well, just like well, he endorsed Romney. Remember, he remember he endorsed Romney when he could have endorsed Newt Gingrich because Newt Gingrich was still in the race. But he ended up he ended up throwing the support behind Mitt, uh, Mitt Romney back in 2012. But you know, I don't support Newt Gingrich either, so that doesn't do much for me. There's only been a couple people I've supported that are in the Republican uh, Party and then in the Democrat, and that, you know, so it's been the Pauls that I've only supported, really, that were Republicans. So, I know, well, and, and I mean, it was kind of a... And it was a half-assed, you know, endorsement too. I mean, I could play the audio, but I won't. It's about seven minutes long, so we won't do that now. Um, you know, because you know, we 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 had that too, and it was you know, it wasn't spectacular as endorsements go. But I think that they're, you know, they the the party, you know, that's just party loyalty. I mean, it's like, yeah, I get that you're supposed to be loyal to your party, but you know, when you're when people in your party aren't living up to the. Um, you know, to the standards or, or to the principles of the party, you know, just or at least the base. I mean, that's what happened in 2012. The Republican Party just kind of chopped off the legs of the elephant, you know, which was chopped off the base. And, well, you got, you know, but, uh, you know, I think here's the thing. They wanted Romney to, to win the nomination because they knew Romney was going to be uh, the new uh, Obama would beat Romney. And they and what then they won it. I can't even talk. Dang it. Uh, they won it Romney. <laughs> I'm sorry, as I said, I've been suffering from headaches and migraines for six days, so I apologize. Um, but they won it, you know, my take is they wanted Romney to be the nominee because they wanted, they knew Romney was going to lose. They knew there was no way Obama would, I mean, he'd defeat Obama. And then because I knew people would hate to have Obama in so much, and uh, Republicans would gain more in the House, and they would get the Senate, which is exactly what happened, even though now they have a, well, a so-called Republican president. We all know he's really not. Um, in there, and so uh, I say, I say, uh, elect to Julia Assange. <laughs> who? You expose it all, Julia Assange. Uh, that's what I thought you said. <laughs> hey, so you we know. got, a, you know, it's about, it's about. Go, go ahead, uh, uh, Susan. But I was gonna say we got about fifteen minutes uh, now. Of course, if you're able to stay for our next guest, uh, Craig, uh, you're welcome to do so. Uh, but if you want, you know, if you have to go, we understand that as well. Um, it's a little bit earlier there in Utah is it here, than it is here in uh, in Ohio. It's about uh, going on 11 p.m. Uh, Eastern time. Uh, we do have a Bob Blake deal coming on 15 minutes, so we still got you know some time. But I do want to give uh, you know give that time up. So if there's any particular you know topic or issue uh, that's the most important to you uh, that you'd like to talk. You know, you know, talk or bring out about, and then also why that would be, why you would be the better candidate, you know, for Utah uh, than Mitt Romney. Um, yeah, I can uh, touch on two of the topics. We we kind of touched a little bit on some of the economic uh, issues that I have, where you know we need to cut spending, we need to cut taxes, we need to really enable the free market to you know expand and uh, run its course, and obviously uh, with. Uh, Mitt Romney, we're not going to get that. Um, he, he's just another big government guy. 
that is going to meddle with, you know, the the markets. He's while well, pretending to be uh, and, and speaking about, you know, kind of the free market principles, but not practicing them. Uh, the other one that I didn't really get a chance too much to talk on um, is foreign policy, and that's probably one of the biggest ones for me. Um, as I had mentioned in my introduction, uh, I, I'm a former serving U.S. Marine, and so I was actually the enforcement arm uh, of foreign policy, uh, especially being an infantryman. Um, so what, what I saw as a pair of those boots on the ground um, and you may have heard uh, Dr. Ron Paul talk about it, is blowback. And I actually got to experience that firsthand when I was deployed to Iraq. Uh, one of the stories that I like to kind of relate to people to get that picture in their head of what blowback really means uh, comes from my first deployment back in 2004. Uh, we were patrolling in an area uh, called Baghdadi. And by and large, we didn't really have any issues. They were kind of indifferent. We were more of just an inconvenience, but they were willing to tolerate us. And one day an army convoy was rolling through, and they ended up getting shot at, and th this army convoy just ended up unloading in the direction of where this shot came from. And unfortunately, a 16-year-old girl uh, was killed um, in that process, you know, an innocent person. And the entire town ended up turning against us. And where we had had relatively uh, peaceful time with, with this town, um, it got to the point where we were either mortared or rocketed almost every single day for the remainder of my deployment. And we also started, um, you know, getting into a lot more small arms fire engagements. And so that, that was a real eye-opener for me. Um, in, in the regards of blowback, where we were in an area where largely there, there wasn't, they, they weren't really fans of the bath party. Um, you know, they just wanted to go about their lives. And then because uh, somebody wasn't as well controlled as they should have been with their firearm, uh, we ended up getting attacked and we ended up losing Marines as a result. And when we end up looking at the broader aspect when you add up all the individual incidents of this, you know, when it's your sister, when it's your mom, when it's your daughter, when it's a brother, and you see that person get killed, you know, obviously you're going to have that anger. You're going to have that hate inside. And because we've been intervening so often in a lot of the uh, foreign affairs around the world militarily, there's a lot of that animosity towards the United States. And so what I would like to see is where, our military is only going to be used in the defense of the United States. Um, so if there is a credible threat, if there is an imminent threat, obviously we should have the capabilities, the means, and we should defend ourselves. But when it comes to some of these things where, you know, and obviously weapons of mass destruction uh, turned out to not really be what they said it was, so why were we there? And those are the questions that we have to start asking ourselves. And the way that I look at it, if I wouldn't carry a rifle into that situation, then I would not send somebody else on my behalf to do that. Uh, another way to look at it is if I would not send one of my sons into harm's way, you know, because it's not defending the country, then why are we doing that? And so I would really like to see a foreign policy where we expand on our diplomacy and our relations 
um, but where we're not so militarily involved. Um, and, and that's uh, basically all I really wanted to say on foreign policy. Bravo. And, and, Kelly, I'd like to ch- and, and Kelly, I'd like to chime in, uh, but first I ask you this. And here, here's my take on, on WMDs. I, I, I believe that they were there. I mean, I, obviously I wasn't in, in the area like, that, like you were, so. but my thought was always, that they had them it's just because it took 10 months before we finally went in there uh that they had the opportunity to you know move those those weapons and i believe they ended up in syria that's my take on it through what you know i've read and that as i said i mean i've never boots on the ground like yourself uh but that's my uh, that's my thought is what happened by the time you guys got there they i think they were gone but i think when they were you know building up to actually make to make the decision or whether they go in because of those weapons and you know mass destruction, uh, I, I think they were there. I just think they were moved. I think there's just plenty of time to move them to Syria, and that's where they ended up. And I mean, just recently, and when I mean recently, I mean within months. You know, you've seen those chemical weapons being used there uh, in Syria. So yeah, that that theory may be uh, more valid. Uh, you know, with that evidence, at least in. You know the way I've seen it, but let's go ahead. And if you want to respond to that later, Craig, that's fine, and we'd I appreciate it. But first, I want to make sure that Kelly gets uh, his questions or comments in. Uh, so go ahead, Kelly. Thanks for coming to the show. Well, thank you. I'm glad this candidate is on. I find him quite eloquent and affluent, and that's what's needed to win races. Not uh, like our guest last tonight, but yeah, um, I in in. in I'm sorry, my heart goes out to you there in that situation, and, and it's such a compelling story of a 16-year-old girl who was, well, that's a life-changing event, which would affect your view on, on foreign policy. I mean, you, you got me there, and also, thank you for your service to our country. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to ask you a question about, as a candidate, um, Okay, this is a pet peeve I have of mine. I'm a civil engineer, and I see code changes. It's not really to protect people. It's to make a profit. A lobby, uh, Somebody has a safety device or a fire prevention device or something for the environment. They file a patent. Then they hire a lobbyist. They get the law passed, and it's a forced sale of a product. Sorry, I've seen it too many times. A forced sale of a product through government, through lobbyists. And what, what's, what's your thoughts on, on that concept? Because it, I, I ask this because the price of homes is skyrocketing because of this baloney and so many other things that we have. What, what, what are your thoughts on lobbyists for profit? Um, you know, I, I obviously uh, uh, don't really like lobbyists too much. Um, you know, I, I understand, you know, kind of the perspective of they want to get their issue across as well. But I feel like they're given a little bit too much weight, um, especially since those uh, organizations are also typically uh, donating to candidates for that access. And so I, I don't really like that they get a little bit more preferential treatment than the average Joe who's out there that has an issue that they want to talk about. And you did bring up kind of that forced sale where there's the artificial, uh, you know, introduction into the economy. The the fact of the matter is if there is a demand for a product, 
and it, it's going to happen. If there is no demand, then it should not be forced to come into the market. Um, so, so I totally agree with you there that there's a lot, uh, way too much influence that we need to have those limits and where we uh, are able to not force products onto consumers. Well, I really appreciate that because I've been watching it for almost 20 years now. And uh, the more recent one, when you're building in California in a wildfire area, or which a lot of the rural counties have these wildfire areas, you're building out in the rural areas, you have to have the special louver. What is this louver? It goes on the soffit. What's a soffit? It's between the drain gutter and the wall, the soffit flat part. And it closes automatically when it senses heat. Well, guess what? You have to buy it. And there's one patent holder on it, and they're making millions. It's a for sale of a product. Well, it's justified by we don't want sparks going up in the attic you know, and, 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 and starting the house on fire. Well, it's my house, but no, I have to buy it. These are very expensive. This is a prime example of a forced sale of a product. Would you favor – would you favor either a fine or criminal penalties for the lobbyists, the corporate board that got this going, and a congressman who got this bill passed? And, and the way you can tell is by the company's profits skyrocketing after the bill gets passed. <clears throat> would, would you force some type, some type of penalty in any form possible to stop this crap? Um, you know, like, like I had mentioned earlier in this interview, I do want to see some ethics with teeth, um, where when situations like this do happen, um, there is a punishment process and a real punishment for the, the member of the House or Senate who's doing it, um, or if it happens to be somebody in the executive branch um, that, that's using their influence to get, you know, their buddy hooked up, um, et cetera, so on. Um, so I, I would like to see where that there are some real punishments. I don't know whether it would be a fine, whether it would be, you know, jail time. I, I would have to look into what would be appropriate. Uh, maybe there might be some different circumstances, but I do definitely want to see some teeth where th there's not that cronyism going on. The, the cronyism and the forced sale of a product. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what I call yeah. it, forced sale of a product. You mean, you mean like health insurance? <laughs> That, that, that Car insurance, health insurance. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, they mandatory. Well, yeah, what they have it here in Ohio. I mean, it's mandatory for you to buy. Uh, now they don't pick the company. They don't. They don't pick the company, but they make you have car insurance here in Ohio. You ha I mean, in order for you to drive, you have to have car insurance, and if you don't, you get fined. And they can they they can actually take your license away from you for not having uh, car insurance. At least, li in at California, least In California, they can take your freaking car and tow it right there on the spot because you didn't have insurance, but they don't enforce that. Wait a minute. It's the Republicans. Oh, the evil Republicans in California. They did it for their their insurance businesses. Oh, wait. No, we've been run by Democrats for like 10, 15 years now. Whoops. <laughs> oh, yeah. or maybe no, I should put a – maybe I should put a plug in for progressive insurance. Buy progressive insurance because you have to. In California, <laughs> yeah, it definitely seems like there's a lot of that collusion going on. Um, and, and when there's clearly somebody profiting from it, obviously the government doesn't have any business mandating or being involved in that process. 
Wow. Can I ask him my standard question, Robert? Uh, yes, go ahead. I, 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 you, you mentioned lobbyists, and then I've got one more question. Then uh, our, uh, our next guest may be calling in uh, shortly, but we'll uh, we'll keep going until you know you know I hear from uh, from Colin. And go ahead. Okay, here's my standard question to ask all candidates: Are you familiar with Article Nine and Ten of the Bill of Rights of the U.S. Constitution? <laughs> Most definitely am, and they're probably the most underappreciated amendments in the Constitution, um, especially the ninth, where the rights are reserved to the people. Actually, that's the tenth. The tenth tenth says the rights are retained by the states and the people. Article number nine says just because we've given you this power doesn't mean you have absolute power over us whatsoever. Yeah. And so 9 and 10 are a beautiful complement in states' rights so that we protect ourselves from a overreaching, ever-increasing federal government. Yeah, I, I look at those as kind of like the uh, omissions plank that the Libertarian Party has, where just because we didn't talk about it doesn't mean there's other prices for it. Something's clicking noise somewhere. Yeah, I hear that too. Susan, cool. is that you? <laughs> I'm just kidding, Susan. Um, no, I'm on. Mu- I'm on mute. <laughs> well, I was. I know. I'm just. I, I was just kidding. It might have been me. It might have been me coming back in because I was just in the green room uh, with our next guest, uh, Bob McNeil from Texas, and we're going to get him on very shortly. Um, and again, Craig, you're welcome to, to stay with us for the, uh, the next uh, guest if you have any, you know, questions. Because he too is running uh, as an alternate party. Uh, for the Senate, he is running uh, with the uh, American Citizen Party, uh, and we'll be talking uh, to him on that you know, with that interview. But uh, and because you brought up lobbyists, I'm actually being considering uh, studying and becoming a lobbyist. Actually, yeah. so you might hate Robert, me at some point, if you, uh, if you do, Kelly. if you do, lo- if you do lobbyists for profit, I will disown you. <laughs> <laughs> you will disown me. Um, I will well, disown actually, you. Well, well, I mean, it's self-preservation, oh, by the way, to be honest, Robert, actually. Uh, what's that? I will vote for this well, I'm guy, in, but I I'm live in, in sales, Idaho. I'm in sales now. I work for the insurance industry, um, but I'm not a lobbyist. <laughs> uh, but I've been considering doing lobbying for actually the uh, the chirogenics uh, industry um, because one of the things that, you know, the legislative-wise right now, because it's, you know, folks who are familiar with the show, is I'm getting chirogenically frozen. And uh, one of the things, however, uh, that the, the industry would like to see get passed, uh, and these are end-of-life issues, so they could be pretty touchy, is that it's actually better to start the cryogenic practice while someone is alive. However, the uh, process itself would clinically kill somebody. Okay, So since there's laws against assisted suicide, uh, in, in most states, from my understanding, is that uh, the industry wants you know to be able, if people want to make the decision to get the process started. Let's say someone is literally, and let me tell you something. About a year or so ago, I watched somebody literally die right in front of my face uh, from cancer. And I tell you what, that's something you. I mean, there's no, there's no good way, I guess. But I tell you what, it's it's a horrible thing to witness. It's a horrible thing. To, to live through and die through, okay? And I'm sure there's other horrible ways as well that even, you know, our, our guest here, Craig, has probably witnessed, 
Okay, but one of the things that, you know, would be lobbying is, is past legislation that if someone is in that, we're like, look, I mean, they literally have weeks, you know, just weeks to live where their 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 body's just being eaten away by this cancer or what have you, that to say, look, it gives you time to say bye to your family, bye to your friends, bye to everybody, and say, well, let's go ahead and start the process. Now, the process itself, as I said, would clinically kill them, but they're gone anyway. I mean, they've already been put in hospice, you know, you know, for, the, for that process. But so anyway, so you, you being a libertarian, uh, Craig, what's your thoughts on uh, legislation that would allow someone to do that? Well, the, the way that I look at it is if you don't control your own body, if, if you don't own yourself, then what rights do you really have? And part of owning yourself and, and part of, you know, be, being in control of your own body um, w- would include the right to die if you so chose. Um, and, and in this case, be uh, preserved, I, I'm assuming, for a, a cure of some kind of disease later on down the road. Uh, right. You know, mm-hmm. those, that, that should be the choice uh, of an individual. Now, do I think that there necessarily needs to be federal legislation that handles that? I'm not entirely uh, sure that falls within line of what the scope of government should be at the federal level. But I would mm-hmm. advocate on behalf at the state level uh, for states to have those kind of laws um, where there is respect for the individuals to go out on their own terms. Well, and that works for me as well because then I get to, to, to travel to the United States lobbying. But anyway, I, I say that halfway <laughs> tongue-in-cheek. Um, but we do have our, our other guest on. I do appreciate uh, Craig coming on to the show. As I said, uh, you're welcome to uh, stay for our next segment. Uh, and, you know, here our next guest who is Bob McNeil, who's running for, again, uh, for Senate in Texas. Uh, I guess one of his opponents may be uh, Ted Cruz, but he's running for uh, an alternate party. Uh, that is, uh, again, the American Citizen Party. So, uh, but before we uh, bring him in, Craig, I want to give uh, the opportunity to either make some closing comments or are you, are you uh, able to stay with us? Um, I, I am going to have to go in uh, and help get the kids ready for bed. Um, so, I am going to have to let you guys go here in a minute. Um, but before I do, um, you know, I, I just want to talk to the individuals that are out there that have listened. You've heard where I stand on the issues, and I hope that you'll consider looking more into, you know, where I stand and what I plan to do for the future, not only for Utah, but for the United States. If you do want to find out more information, uh, the website is www.bowdenforsenate.com, and that's the number four, not the word. So bowdenforsenate.com. You can also find me on Twitter at bowdenforsenate. And you can look me up on Facebook. Um, If you have any other questions, please feel free to send them my way. We do try to answer them within 48 hours. And if you do have the inkling to send in a donation, right now we do have a donor uh, who graciously came forward to support our campaign, and they're matching every donation until March 14th. I vote for you, but... I'm in, in Idaho. In Idaho so. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if, if well, well, I appreciate it, Craig. Uh, definitely, definitely give us updates, you know, on, on how things are going. Uh, you know, it's definitely uphill battle. And if you do, uh, you know, want to consider at least listening to a little bit of uh, opposition research, uh, we did a little bit, especially when it came to do some research on uh, him and Bain Capital. 
and I'll leave it up there, and you can do without as you as you will. Just look at his dealings with Bain Capital. Uh, but anyway, uh, we do appreciate uh, you coming on, and I will uh, email you or, or send you the link uh, there on Facebook as well. Uh, I appreciate it. So let's go ahead and bring in our next guest uh, who is running uh, for Senate in Texas, uh, and that is for the American Citizens Party, uh, and that is our next guest, Robert uh, McNeil. Thank you very much, Robert, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Hey, Robert, I'm great. How about you? Uh, doing all right, doing all right. Uh, you know, as I said, I've been, been trying to shake this migraine for about six days now, headache migraine about six days. So it's uh, it has been a challenge, to be honest. But beyond that, you know, there's there's worse things. So uh, <laughs> I'm just, you know, happy to be on here with uh, you folks tonight. Well, thank you. I've been listening to the show for about the last 30 minutes. Uh, really, really appreciate the comments from the other guests and, and uh, some of the callers. Yeah, and I've got, uh, and I know you've, we've definitely got some topics, and we'll, pro- we'll probably have you for the, the rest of the show because uh, you definitely want to, you know, because we kind of alluded what, uh, to what was going on last week. Actually, our guest was familiar with your plight there with the uh, the IRS and uh, the DOJ, and we'll hear more uh, more about that in your trip to your recent trip to DC. Uh, yeah. But but first and foremost, I know a lot of folks may have not heard about. Uh, the American Citizens Party. So I'd like to start off by uh, you telling us a little bit more about that. Of course. Uh, I I formed the American Citizen Party here in Texas in February of 2009 uh, for the express purpose of uh, bringing about what I call the 21st century American Revolution, which is a tax revolt, uh, a peaceful revolution that will restore liberty and prosperity to all American citizens. And uh, all of this came about the, uh, uh, from my experience with the Internal Revenue Service that has been, that has been going on since the year 2000. So uh, from 2000 to 2009, I, I was battling the IRS on my own. Uh, when, the, uh, uh, when the Republicans lost the House of Representatives to the Democrats in 2006, I'm a constitutional conservative, and I was a Republican, but I I was done with the Republicans in 2006, and so I uh, I decided I was uh, I was going to write a plan that would restore the liberty and prosperity that the founders intended, and so in 2007 I sat down uh, beginning in the summer of 2007 and uh, began doing research and began writing and and reading and studying uh, the writings of the founders and everything I could get my hands on. And by the summer of 2008, it took me a year, by the summer of 2008 I emerged with what I called uh, the plan that would restore those freedoms. I never intended to run for political political office. That was not my goal. I, uh, I spent 40 years as a corporate auditor and an accountant and, I solved multi-million dollar problems for multi-billion dollar companies for a living. So uh, that was the purpose of me going through that exercise, was merely just to solve the problem uh, of the income tax and how it uh, destroys lives and seals people's wealth and uh, and puts people in prison. And uh, so my intent, uh, after I wrote the plan, was to give that to the Republican presidential candidate in 2008 for that person to take that plan and implement it 
and restore our liberties. Well, as you're aware, that person in 2008 was John McCain. And uh, there's no way in in the world that I would ever give a plan to John McCain. (laughs) So I I sat down, I, I prayed to God, I am a believer, and I said, God, what would you have me do? I, you gave me this plan. What do you want me to do now? And the message I got was, Bob, you're, you're the one that has to put it forward. So in August of 2008, I, I ran a four, beginning then, I, I ran a four-month write-in campaign for president of the United States as an independent candidate. And so uh, under, the, under this plan. And um, so after the election was over, obviously I didn't win. Uh, I had people call me and write me and email me and say, Bob, I loved your plan. Uh, I love your principles. I love your background. You're, you're, you're entirely qualified to be president. Are you going to run again? And so it was at that time in early 2009 that I decided, well, yes, I will, but I need to have a party label under me to support me so I could rally people behind it. You know, uh, I started off saying, you know, rally all ye independents. And that I, I decided that would be like, uh, that would be like herding cats. And uh, uh, so I thought long and hard. That's a phrase we're very familiar with here at the show. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, exactly. So I prayed very hard about the name that I would give the party, and I came up with American Citizen Party. And uh, I thought I felt felt like that's what uh, that is a party that any freedom-loving American could r- rally around, especially faced with the uh, the thought of voting for a Republican and certainly a Democrat. Uh, and uh, and so that's what uh, what started the party. I, I chartered it here in Texas. It is an active party still. Uh, I'd like to have more people on board with it, but. It seems like people are unwilling to uh, vote for a third-party candidate. They are, they're still inclined to believe that we can bring about the change that needs to be made in our country by still voting for establishment Republicans and Democrats. And uh, I believe the, co- the, the country is coming around to a different way of thinking, but there's, we're simply just not there yet. So, uh, so that's that's the genesis of the American Citizen Party, and uh, I do have a plan. It is a powerful plan. It is a constitutional plan, and uh, no other candidate from any party has one that can match it. So we're you know definitely going to talk more and hear more about uh, about the specifics of the plan. Uh, but one of the things you mentioned is about citizens, and of course one of the big topics. Uh, that's you know been going around, and of course, again, this is one of those topics we've been talking about. When I mean we, I mean the United States, is, you know, probably around the world, but let's you know, the United States is of course immigration uh, and yeah. illegal immigration, ex- especially. Um, so you know, just you know, tell us our, your stance on uh, illegal immigration. What's your thoughts on chain migration, the lottery system? Uh, do you think that you know, as being you know, the possibility of a member of the Senate? Uh, would you be supporting, you know, Trump's plans when it comes to uh, chain migration and the lottery system? Uh, you know, th- you know those two things specifically. Uh, no, and here's why: I, I support fully legal immigration. We have a we have laws in place. 
we have a system in place to welcome people into our country who are willing to come here, uh, assimilate, and become Americans, and to learn English and be productive citizens. And so I support that. Uh, I don't support any uh, illegal immigration. I don't support amnesty for anyone here that is here illegally. And I don't support chain migration. Um, and so, uh, no, that's my stance on it, and I'm pretty solid on that. Now, it looks like uh, that the – remember the deadline. I'm sure you're familiar with the deadline that Trump put out that, hey, we need to have – now, of course, it's been blocked you know, by courts, and I think they kind of knew that was going to happen anyway. I think any time yeah. uh, these, these folks in Washington you know, make these so-called deadlines, there's always a catch to it, and I think they have it built in uh, – Prior to you know making those say okay you know what's going to happen is if you don't come up with something by March the fifth all these DACA people seven hundred thousand people they're they're going back to their uh, their native country right their home country well obviously March fifth has passed and that hasn't happened of course there's been a court order or court orders stating that oh we're going to put a stay on it and I, I, part of me thinks that you know I think that before they made the uh, you know, the deadline, the date of the deadline, I think they may have already – I mean, I hate to say it about Trump, but uh, they may have already known that uh, because, once again, just kicking the can down the field, which is something Washington has become quite uh, expert at. Well, yeah, exactly. Let's not, let's not forget that DACA was the result of a, uh, an executive order uh, written by President Obama. And uh, it's not law. It is merely an executive order. And that March 5th deadline was already written into that, and I believe that it was a poison pill put in place by Obama for the next president to have to tackle. And so here it is upon us now, March 5th, which has passed, March 5th of 2018, and the only thing for uh, anyone to do for, for, the, uh, for DACA to expire is just merely let the deadline pass. And so that's what has happened. And now, of course, the world is going to come to an end if we don't do something with these seven or 800,000 people that have now been here for a number of years and uh, who have, many of them have still failed to apply for citizenship, uh, learn English, uh, become citizens, uh, educate themselves. And, uh, and so the... The only recourse for them is to go back to the countries from which their parents were from who brought them illegally to the United States. And they're welcome, and to, they're, uh-huh. they're welcome to to get in line and, uh, you know, uh, fill out the application and become citizens, but, uh, but, but they can't stay here. They have to go back. Well, one of the things I contend is that's actually a win-win situation, and – and this is why I think so. It's a win for the United States, and I think it's a win for uh, their home country. Because, you know, one is, you know, it's, I think it's going to open up to have more jobs for, of course, American citizens, American teenagers, American youth, uh, you know, to get entry-level positions, you know, even if it is, you know, some hard labor positions. Um, I think it's going to benefit us that way. It's also going to benefit for those who, as you stated, you know, did not take the time to become citizens or learn English. Uh, or to assimilate, and they're just probably on uh, the American taxpayers' backs, you know, to the dole of the government. 
okay, they get sent back and or you know, they have to go back and that's gonna, you know, alleviate, you know, you know, part of you know, part of that of how much money's being sent to them on our welfare systems. And two, it's gonna uh, help their home countries because there have been and there are a number of them uh, that have learned certain skills, have learned English uh here and so they can go back to their home country with the skills that they've earned and guess what? They could probably be one of the top wage earners in their country. Staying here, they're going to, you know, they're going to get an entry-level position. You know, they, they may not make, you know, a lot of money here, you know, comparatively to other people, right? But if they go back with the skills that they've got, they've garnered here in the United States, teaching English, where, you know, they, they could be a teacher or someone who teaches English to the people or the skills they've learned here in an industry, perhaps go back to their home country, become an entrepreneur. So they actually could be on the top tier, you know, of uh, their economic, you know, uh, their economic ladder, maybe not the top, but that means they can be higher than they would be here in the United States uh, because of the skills that they learn. So now their country's benefit because they have these new skilled workers uh, and, or knowledgeable workers there. Uh, let's say if they stayed and did, did get, you know, an education probably on the United States dime. Um, and, and so it benefit. I just think it benefits everybody to just take them back. No, I, I do back. too. I can, I can certainly see the positive side to that. And let's not forget, hard labor never hurt anybody. You know, I don't know about you, but when I was a teenager, I worked in lumber yards. I worked at refineries. I, I mowed yards. Right. Uh, and that, that didn't kill me. And, in fact, it made me stronger. I was in very good shape at age 16, 17, 18. And I was oh, yeah, I had a six-pack. Now it's more like a keg. No, well, my, myself, you know, exactly. But, uh, but hard labor, I mean, those entry-level jobs are, are what build – uh, character and they build a work ethic and uh, and things like that and we need our young people to have those opportunities and when those opportunities are not there for them because someone else who uh, who came here illegally uh, are hired for those jobs at a lower wage by the way uh, then I think it actually hurts our young people and, and takes away opportunities that ordinarily would would exist for them to begin to earn money and, and earn, uh, learn how to uh, manage money and, uh, and get, a, get a head up, heads up on life, you know. So no, I can certainly see the positive side to that. And let's also uh, remember that not every DACA recipient is from Mexico. We have people that come to this country illegally from almost every country in the world, and yet for some reason uh, we're being mean to the Mexicans. And uh, and I just don't get that at all. People need to take a larger view of this, and uh, and uh, and understand that it's a much larger issue than just our neighbors from the south. No, definitely. And, and you had a, a nice there quote there, there Kelly, that uh, you sent to me. But I'd really love to hear you say it. <laughs> Oh, don't be uh, shy, yeah. Callie. Say it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, we touched on uh, illegal immigrants, and uh, by the way, I'm starting to like this candidate, and uh, and, and welcome here. Um, but yeah, I, I, I have this. I heard this quote from Donald Trump, and it was hilarious. And it's this: um, you, you, you're you're talking, you're discussing illegal immigrants. So here's the quote. Okay, give a man a fish, and he'll eat for a day. Deport him, you'll never have to feed him again. <laughs> 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 well, 
Well, there's a lot of truth to that, of course. Uh, but think about it a minute. I mean, I live in Texas. Texas, at one point in our history, was a part of Mexico, and we have a tremendous Hispanic population in Texas, and especially in South Texas. And we have fifth-generation Texans with, uh, with Mexican-sounding names, but they are Texans and they are Americans. And I can tell you that those people, those fourth and fifth and sixth generation Texans, they don't like illegal immigration any more than anyone else does. They want these people to uh, to come in the front door, knock on the door, take their papers, fill them out, and come in it the right way. Because in the end, it's also unfair to those people who have done that, have waited in line for years, have paid thousands of dollars to become American citizens. You know, becoming an American citizen is not is not intended to be easy. This is a country that people want to come to. It's a privilege to be here, and and people need to work for it and really want it. You don't just walk across the border and announce that you're a citizen already, or or start taking uh, benefits from from pe- people who are productive Americans. Uh, it, it's designed to make you work for it and appreciate it because that's when you when when you work for something you appreciate it more. And so, uh, so that's that's my take on it. I welcome anybody here from any country around the world, but just come here and do it the right way. That's all. Well, that was what you said. You know, I'm I'm actually liking your um, what you're communicating, and not just what you're communicating, but you're communicating in a very winsome way, and I th- I think you have a shot. Um, and oh, here's another little funny one for you. Okay, you mentioned the IRS, something about it, but. What happens when you put the words the and IRS together? The answer is it spells theirs. <laughs> so um, I don't want to spend too much time on the the IRS or theirs. Um, but kind of what's your thoughts on the size of the federal government from the IRS? Well, I have extensive experience with the IRS, as uh, Robert just alluded to a few minutes ago. I've been battling the IRS for 17, eight years, 18 years old, uh, 18 years now, uh, and it all started with a question uh, to the IRS. And remember, I spent 40 years as a, co- a corporate auditor, and my job was to ask questions and receive clear answers so that I could solve problems for multi-billion-dollar companies. And so I didn't think it was out of line at all for me to ask the IRS. Would you tell me what law requires me to to file a tax return and pay the income tax? Because I've read the tax code and I, I really can't see it. It's not clear to me that that I'm liable for that tax. And in 18 years now, uh, and I have over 300 documents on my website, no IRS employee has ever answered that question. And uh, so that that tells me something straight away. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're asking, I mean, this is, this, what you've just told me is one of these, stop, okay, stop the bus, back up the train, raise the Titanic. What? They're not answering your simple question. Okay, so I do engineering, house plans, subdivisions, stormwater, whatever. And it's like, um, okay, show me in the code. And they open the code book, boom, there it is. Thou shalt have this on roof. Thou shalt do this. Thou shalt do that. And, you know, the nice, you know, they're decent people, the building department. 
uh, at least in my county, and they'll show me the code. And if there's, um, this has happened several times where chief building official in the county, there's two ways to interpret, three ways to interpret the code. I go and meet with him, and and he, you know, we have this discussion. He interprets it this way. I interpret it that way. Sometimes he wins. Sometimes I win. But there is clearly, clearly a code. They look it up. And there it is. Okay. So taxes are like obviously one of the most important things because how many months a year do people spend paying the taxes? And they can't just open their book and show you where the code is. This, this is this. I mean, you're you're very intriguing. So I, I hope you continue with what you're saying. Well, let me let me just uh, address that. I actually had three face-to-face meetings when I lived in Houston. I had three face-to-face meetings with an IRS revenue officer. We met in a meeting room at the IRS uh, building, and I asked him face-to-face, "Would you show me the code, the part of the, the tax law that makes me liable?" His answer to me was this: "I don't know the code." I don't know the IRS code. I said, "What?" And I said, "Wait a minute. Are you meaning? Are you are you telling me that you are an internal revenue, uh, 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 an IRS revenue agent officer, and you don't know the code that allows you to confiscate people's property, uh, issue liens and levies, empty their bank accounts, steal their homes?" And ruin their lives. You can't show me the law that that gives you the authority to do that. And he says, "No, I, I don't know the code." So there's your answer. Oh my, oh my gosh. Well, let's go back to the building code. <laughs> exactly, there is, right? um, yeah. Um, typically, you have a three foot wide stairwell. Okay, your stairs are three foot wide. You can actually make them thinner than that, but the handrail has to be three feet. I'm like, what? But it's right there in the code. And this is handrail, okay? Yeah. Handrails. Yes, must be three feet, and your stairs can be like, I think it's 30 inches. You know, I had a tight situation where, like, so the so the building code addresses handrails and the width and the width of steps, but the IRS agent who's going to steal your land or your bank account can't cite the code. I mean, this is this is mind blowing. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm just like, whoa. I mean, I'm just like, what? Paradigm. Well, I'm sorry. I'm suffering a paradigm shift right now. So no, I understand. I mean, no, I, I, I don't I'm, want. I'm speaking the truth. This is exactly what happened to me. Uh, I was there, and I've actually documented it on my website. By the which, by the way, yeah, for everyone listening, is www.ram-v-irs.com. And that document, I I, uh, I put that website up in 2007 because I didn't believe what I was hearing either, just as I explained it to you. And I wanted the world to see what was going on. And so I have more than 300 documents, pieces of correspondence, with uh, me and the IRS. Uh, I've been to court with them in federal court twice now. I've defeated them both times, by the way. And... Uh, and so uh, I wanted the world to know that uh, this whole thing is a scam. I mean, seriously, if they can't show us how and and why we owe this tax, then do we really owe this tax? And my answer is no. And uh, and so uh, so that's and that's the purpose of the website, and uh, that's the purpose 
Washington, D.C., which was on March 1st. Um, and uh, if we can jump there, Robert, do you mind? Robert, are you there? Hello, Robert. Robert. Hey, Dean Robert, there's a cleanup in aisle four. <laughs> okay, I apologize. I muted my mic there for a second. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah, while it's fresh on my mind, uh, after 18 years now of battling the IRS, uh, I decided to uh, to sue them. And uh, this began in 2015. A gentleman approached me and said, hey, Bob, uh, I've discovered that the IRS, in the enforcement of the income tax, uh, com- commits computer fraud. I have uh, obtained uh, uh, printouts from their computer system, and I've examined the uh, transaction codes that they use to uh, make all these things happen, to generate all these letters and liens and levies and things like that. And I have found some uh, discrepancies and some violations of the law. In fact, I've, I've I've discovered computer fraud, and you know you being Bob, a, a corporate auditor, would you take a look at the evidence and see if you agree with me? Because you know, let me know what you think. And he showed me the evidence. He showed me the transaction codes. He showed me how they entered codes, and then concealed them, and then uh, put in motion a series of letters and liens and levies and all that. From uh, from concealed uh, transaction codes. Well, an element of, of fraud is the concealment of a positive act, and so he had filed a case against the IRS, a lawsuit, and with the with the intent to enjoin or stop the IRS from committing computer fraud. He says, you know, you guys can you can enforce the income tax. If you want, but you can't commit fraud to do it. Nobody, uh, Congress can't give anyone the uh, the authority to commit fraud in the enforcement of any tax or any law. And so, uh, so when I saw that, he said, "And Bob, if you see that in your in your records as well, uh, you know, you might want to consider filing a lawsuit also." Well, I happen to have a print, the same printout of, of my records, and I did see the same pattern of transaction codes in my records, and so I did. I filed a lawsuit in 2005. And, of course, I published all that on my website. And uh, in 2015, I'm sorry, is when I filed my lawsuit. Uh, I published that on my website, and uh, lo and behold, people started contacting me and saying, hey, Bob, I've been damaged the same way you have. Uh, People from all over the country, California, uh, Ohio, Rhode Island, all over the country say, and uh, would would you help me file a lawsuit as well? And so we ended up, uh, my friend Michael and I working together, uh, helping about 10 other people file lawsuits against the Internal Revenue Service in federal court in Washington, D.C. And so uh, the department, when you when you file a lawsuit in uh, against the, the government or a government agency, the Department of Justice assigns an attorney to defend that agency uh, against the lawsuit. And the first thing that the Department of Justice attorney does, or did in this case, was to file a motion to dismiss our case based on uh, a lack of jurisdiction the court. In other words, he says, the, the court, you don't even have the jurisdiction to hear this case, and here's the reason why, if you can imagine this. 
There's an 1867 law that Congress passed. It's called the Anti-Injunction Act. And what that act says, and remember, if you if you study history at all, this was during the Civil War, and this was uh, actually when the first income tax was enacted during the um, uh, during the Civil War, during uh, President Lincoln's uh, tenure. And this act says, no no lawsuit can be heard in any courts in the United States that interferes with the assessment or collection of any tax. In other words, it was it was it was designed passed by Congress because they wanted a free flow of revenue into the treasury that could not be interrupted by uh some sort of judicial action. And so this is what has given rise to this this 1867 law which the DOJ still quotes today has given uh, rise to the requirement that if you uh, have a dispute with the Internal Revenue Service over the uh, a tax they say you owe, you must first pay the tax and then go to tax court to attempt to recover it. And so that's that's how we have arrived today on, on how, to, how to resolve a dispute with the IRS. Hello? Hello? I'm still here. Can you hear me? 